everyone. Welcome to the Five Beer Plan. I'm Brian, and this is the ongoing saga of an everyman's ale trail. In this episode, I'll use my bloodhound abilities to sniff out the importance of aroma in beer, finish up my chat with Stefan at Hoplore Brewing, and review Jules Brig from Motorworks Brewing. In this segment of Tales from the Trail, I'm going to provide some more tips for the best enjoyment of beer. Join me now for another sensational segment. So here's a deep question for you. What is more important when drinking a beer, taste or smell? Think about it for just a moment. Okay, do you have an answer in mind? Does anyone else remember back in the mid-70s when Miller Lite had the clever and wildly successful Taste Great, Less Filling campaign which lasted for many years? I have to admit, I do, and my first thought to that question, which has been ingrained in me since childhood, is that the most important thing in beer has to be taste. I suppose if the only thing you're drinking are the mass-produced American lagers on the market, I can see that would make sense. However, we're fortunate to live in a time in beer history where hop reigns and we don't have to settle for such aroma-deficient beers. One only has to look at the great variety and complexity in beer styles to know that there is so much more to beer than taste. Of the four main ingredients in beer, water, yeast, hops, and grain, the last three have quite an influence on what our sense of smell, or what you might refer to as nose, picks up. Take the Hefeweizen, for example. The yeast used in this German style of beer leads to aromatic notes of clove, banana, or maybe even bubblegum. The same goes for Belgian ales. The Belgian yeast used has a very distinctive fruity or floral aroma. Another example is the German Rauch beer. From first glance, it looks like a porter or a stout until you bring it close to your nose and you immediately pick up the smoky profile that comes from the process of drying the malt over an open flame. I've talked about the Polish Grodziski before. It has the golden colored appearance of a pale ale or an IPA but has a smoky profile aroma. The best example is one of the most popular styles in beer today. The American IPA, which is often brewed with New World American hops that are cultivated to impart and enhance the experience. It doesn't necessarily have to be a New England style to get some great profiles on the nose. Grassy, fruity, citrusy, earthy, and everything in between. The influence from hops can't be overlooked. If we get a little nerdy for just a moment, there are odorant aroma compounds called thiols contained in hops. Thiols make up less than 1% of the essential oils in hops, yet have a huge influence on aroma. To put it in perspective, I was watching a very scientific talk on beerandbrewing.com about these sulfur-containing compounds. The scientist in the video gave the example of off-aromas in beer. If you've ever had a bad beer, you know what I'm talking about. Well, the compounds responsible appear in the range of parts per million or parts per billion. Pretty small. Thiols, in stark contrast, appear in parts per trillion. If you're having a hard time wrapping your mind around the numerical significance, consider this. Parts per million would be the equivalent of using an eyedropper to put one drop of water into 10 gallons of water. Parts per trillion would be the equivalent of putting one drop of water from an eyedropper into 10 million gallons of water. Now that's some influence. 
So how do we take advantage of the olfactory senses that we possess to get the most out of the smell of beer? My best advice is to slow down and savor the process of enjoying your craft beer if you're not doing that already. When you're pouring your beer, notice how it smells and what kind of profile it has. I've cracked open some beers that just flood the room with aroma, others don't. A trick I often use is to cover the mouth of the glass with one hand and with the glass on the table, swirl it around a time or two and then take my hand off quickly taking a sniff. Another thing I do is to get my nose right into the beer without getting it wet, though I have to admit that it has happened before, and taking a sniff or two. And finally, there's another trick you can use to employ what is called your retronasal sense of smell. It takes a little bit of practice, but this can also help you get a better perception of aroma and in some cases, give you a wildly different profile. Whenever you take a drink, try swallowing while keeping your mouth closed and exhaling through your nose. It's pretty wild. The only problem with checking out the aroma of every beer you drink in a particular sit-down session is that your nose sometimes gets acclimated to the different aromas. So one thing you can do is to put your nose on your, your arm, like your upper shoulder, and sniff and just kind of zero out your sense of smell with your own aroma of your body. And it actually works pretty well. I know not everyone feels the same way I do about the multi-sensory experience of drinking beer, and that's okay. In fact, there may be times when the enjoyment comes simply from the company you keep while sipping on that handcrafted brew. In this segment of Homebrew Hijinks, it's time to kick off my new homebrew project, my passion fruit sour ale. In previous episodes, you might recall that my original homebrew project was extract-based. Definitely good for the novice as it just simplified the creation of the wart. Well, this time, I decided to kick up the complexity just a notch and go with an all-grain bill. As mentioned in my last episode, I found a pretty straightforward recipe from Joe Stang at beerandbrewing.com for this sour ale. It was a five-gallon kit, so I scaled it down since I only have a one-gallon fermenter. Just because it's good to plan ahead, I scouted out possible homebrew supply stores between Florida and Ohio. There was a really good-looking one in Knoxville, Tennessee, but the timing just didn't work out. So I looked ahead and found that Listerman Brewing in Cincinnati, Ohio also has a decent-sized homebrew supply. I've had a few beers from them in the past, but I've never visited the taproom. So, I killed two birds with one stone. After a quick flight of beer, it was time to peruse the store so I could fill my grain bill. As I took a look around the store, I was a little out of my element at this point, if I'm being perfectly honest. Once Alan was free, he helped me get situated and showed me how to mill my grain. My grain bill consisted of German Pilsner, white wheat malt, and rice hulls. I used the digital scale to measure out the quantities and then used the mill to break down the husk to the correct size. Milling is done in order to expose as much surface area of the grain to the mashing process because it is the starchy interior that is needed for the sugar used for the yeast feast. There were two different mills, one for light grains and one for heavy grains. The rice hulls were not milled. These three elements would eventually become my wort. Since I'm using a single five-quart stock pot for both mashing and boiling the wort, I didn't really want to have to worry about laudering the grain. Laudering, if you remember, is a brewing term for separating the liquid wort from the residual grain after mashing. It can get sludgy in the bottom of the pot and be difficult to separate without some effort. So I decided to use the bag method and bought a brew bag. It's basically a mesh bag with a drawstring that will hold two to three pounds of grain and would keep all my grain self-contained for easy extraction. 
You might be wondering why rice hulls are added and not rice. Well, what I learned is that rice hulls are added to prevent the grain from clumping together into tiny balls, which would reduce the surface area exposed to the water. So I took my Pilsner, wheat malt, and rice hulls and gently mixed them together in the brew bag. This time around, I wanted to have a little more record of specific temperatures and times used for the mash-in. So I ended up using some online calculators from Brewer's Friend to determine the amount of water required and also the strike and mash-in temperature for my grain. The strike temperature, 162 degrees Fahrenheit in my case, is the initial temperature of the water when you plunge the grain in. It will cool off a certain amount due to the addition of the grain. The mash-in temperature, 154 degrees Fahrenheit in my case, is the sustained temperature you want for the mash process. Once my strike temperature was confirmed by a simple digital instant thermometer, I turned off my burner and added the brew bag into the heated water. I used a binder clip to attach the drawstring to the handle of the pot so it wouldn't fall in and then situated the bag in such a way that the maximum amount of grain would be in contact with the water. I confirmed the mash temperature and began the 60 minute mash in. I wanted to keep the temperature consistent without turning the burner back on. Again, since I'm limited, I improvised. In higher end setups, you can actually buy a vessel that will stay heated at the desired temperature or you can even get an insulated blanket to maintain the desired mash in temperature. I simply put the oven on warm, which is around 200 degrees Fahrenheit, left the door open a crack, and covered the stock pot in hopes it would maintain the temperature. I checked a couple times and confirmed I was right where I wanted to be. Well, once the mashing was complete, I also wanted to sparge the grain. This is just a final rinse of sorts to ensure all the good sugary content has been added to my wort. My stock pot has several different accessories and one of them is a colander of sorts that sits on the top. Once again, I consulted the calculators at Brewer's Friend to determine what temperature and amount of water would be needed for my boil. So in parallel, I heated the necessary amount of water in a second stock pot to 170 degrees Fahrenheit. I then removed the brew bag from the stock pot and laid it in the colander. I poured the water over the bag while rotating it to ensure I got as much of the sugars as possible. I let it drain for a few minutes and let gravity do its thing. You never want to squeeze the grain because you might get unwanted tannins that could give you some off flavors in your beer. I then discarded the grain and got ready for my next step. Join me next time as I boil the wort. Now it's time for Barstool Banter. This episode, I will wrap up my conversation with Stephen King from Hoplore Brewing. Listen in as we talk about his favorite and least favorite beer styles, reverse osmosis, and a little beer fest they host called Lord of the Hops, which is coming up on May 6th. What is your uh, favorite style of beer to drink? <laughs> Just like most brewers, I mean, I think... To actually drink, uh, my favorite style is just my, a nice clean lager. Okay. Um, and that's what I've gravitated to more and more. It's hard for me to pick out a singular style, though, mm -hmm. because like like I mentioned, I love the big stouts. Yeah. Um, I love the smoothie sours that we do and sours in general. Um, I've just become a fan of, you know, the quote unquote all day drinkers sure. uh, myself personally. And uh, for a lot of these others, uh, the big stouts, the smoothie sours, the wild sours, they tend to be more something that I'm going to do at a share mm -hmm. and, you know, do four or six ounces of something. What kind of lagers and or like Kolsch's do you brew there at Top Floor? Uh, right now, we haven't really started our lager program full okay. bore. 
Okay. Uh, we do a cream ale at this point, which is a little unique for a cream ale. It drinks almost like a Pilsner. We're not going for a big, rich, thick, creamy type cream ale. I wanted something that was going to be more on the dry side, lean more lager like. Cream ales and Kolsch's are, are basically a hybrid beer. Uh, they generally are going to use a lager yeast, just fermented at ale temperatures. But I wanted it to be crisp. I wanted it to be clean and come in right around 5% because we don't do lagers right now. Right. Our first lager we did was last fall. It was a Fest beer, which is a style that's uh, not really well understood. Uh, the Fest beer is the beer that is actually poured at Munich for the uh, Oktoberfest. Oktoberfest is a Marzen that, that typically is brought out around that time. But the Fest beer is more of a Pilsner as well. Um, it's a little lighter in color, not as malt heavy, not as uh, much like brown ale, if you will, as far as flavor is concerned. And in interestingly enough, we are brewing with 100% RO. We're, we're kind of an oddity with regard to that. There's only a few breweries here in Indiana that brew 100% RO. But what that does is that gives us the ability to tailor our water to exactly what we're brewing. Um, so if I'm brewing a Scottish ale, I'm going to use the water profile of Scotland. In this case, the Fest beer, we actually use the uh, Munich water profile. And it came to a real crisp, clean, dry, uh, just a little bit of that Munich flavor. And I uh, was really happy with the way it turned out. It's kind of an interesting one because there's some folks that just know the Oktoberfest and that's what they expect even when you say Fest beer. But uh, had a, a mug club member that actually said he goes to the uh, German American Fest in Toledo every year. And they actually fly German beer in overnight on ice for that fest. Cool. And he said that that's uh, about the closest thing he's ever had in here in the States to a, an actual German type of water profile. Wow, that's high praise. So you mentioned RO. I don't, that's not a term I've ever heard before. Can you explain? Uh, yeah, reverse saying? osmosis. Okay. So basically what we're doing is we're essentially wiping the slate clean of any dissolved solids that are in the water. Mm -hmm. um, so that way we can start from scratch and make the water whatever we want it to be, as opposed to having to compensate based on what's already there. So you're adding mineral salts, that kind of thing to try to get to the right kind of pH and acidity and whatever yep. then? Yep, exactly. We're adding for mouthfeel. The water actually has a, a pretty large contribution to mouthfeel. Mm -hmm. the, the bitterness is dependent on the dissolved solids that are in the water as well. So um, we're able to tailor, if we're doing a West Coast IPA, uh, we're able to tailor it to bring out that bitterness. If we're doing a New England IPA, which is the opposite side, we're mm -hmm. able to tailor it for that smooth mouthfeel that you want to get out of a New England IPA. That's really cool. That's not something I've ever uh, asked or been told that other companies have been doing. So that's really neat to know what, what you're up to. And that's probably why the flavors that you have are so solid and you can bring out, like you said, those big profiles. Is it like a hard process, an expensive process to, to do the reverse osmosis? Uh, reverse osmosis systems are definitely not inexpensive, uh, yeah. especially on the pro side. Mm -hmm. On a home brew side, you can pick up a reverse osmosis unit for like under the sink for like three, 400 bucks. Sure. Um, but right now we're on a system that will flow uh, 1.8 gallons a minute of reverse osmosis water. So it's a much wow. larger system than what you would find in a, a traditional like home type application. Sure. So along the same lines, is there a, a style of beer that you don't particularly like to drink? I don't necessarily have anything that I don't like to drink. I'm picky about, you know, the technical stuff, obviously being a brewer, 
So I guess what I don't like to drink are things that would potentially have, you know, technical issues with them. And that's probably my biggest thing. It's, it's on a case-by-case basis. You know, if I get something like a, a significant acetal or, or something like that, acetaldehyde, all those type of off flavors are things that I, I tend to pay a lot of attention to in my own, but then I also pay attention to in, in other brews as well. Yeah, it's definitely an occupational hazard, isn't it? <laughs> right, absolutely. And that's one of the things as a, an amateur, as far as the beer industry goes, I taste a lot of beer, but I'm always trying to pick out what the flavor profiles are. Like the other day, I had the beer that had a lot of the, the diacetyl, the buttery flavor to it. Mm-hmm. And, and for whatever reason, I mean, I know I've tasted that before, but, the, but this particular beer, it was like so front and center. It really blew me away because I've really yeah, never had and- a beer that's buttery like that. Yeah. And it, it really depends on style. I mean, as far as lagers, I told you I drink a lot of lagers right now. Yeah. You know, the Czech lager is probably one of my favorites, you know, your okay. Pilsner or Kel. And as far as like diacetyl, for example, that particular style of beer probably has higher diacetyl than any other style out there. But with that particular beer, that particular style, it works. Mm. Um, so what I guess turns me off about beers is if it's not supposed to be there, that's where and it throws flavors off that's where those types of things come in thinking about this i think it was from a rochester mills one of their milk stouts that i Mm. had and i think it was uh like a cake or something and it had that big buttery smell and flavor so it was definitely intentional and it was enjoyable Mm -hmm. but i can certainly agree with you there that if those flavors aren't or smells aren't there that you you don't want them to be then that's definitely an off-putting thing i live in northwest ohio I used to live in Michigan, so I've done a lot of exploring up in the greater Grand Rapids area, been down to Columbus, Ohio, so I've done a lot of exploring there. So the Northeast Indiana area wasn't some place that I'd really explored a whole lot. One of the things I'd like to do is to go to beer fests and find local regional breweries because they all come together. And Lord of the Hops has been on my list for a number of years. Last year, I finally made it out there. And if you could see my shirt, I have my shirt on. Great time. I love the way that you bring together a lot of the regional Northeast Indiana breweries and even Central Indiana for that matter, because I think there were, what, 40 different breweries there this last year? Yeah, I think about 35. So it was cool to see you know, all those breweries together, get to try their beer, you know, music, some food, bottle shares. Uh, it was a great time. Are you planning a 2023 event? Yeah, we're working on it right now. The date will be May 6th this year. Uh, We're going to have a little fun with it. Uh, Every year we do a May the 4th release. Okay. Uh, Of course, that's Star Wars tied in. Uh, It's called Java the Cow. (laughs) And uh, it's a big uh, Imperial Coffee Milk Stout. But this year we're going to go a little bigger with it. Uh, We're planning actually to do like a mixed four pack of kind of Star Wars themed beers. Uh, We'll be taking one that was kind of a variant of that Java the Cow. We called it Breakfast at the Cantina, who shot first. And that one is a uh, milk stout. And that one has maple syrup and bacon in it, as well as coffee. Um, So that one's going to find its way to cans this year as well. Uh, We'll do a couple for uh, Revenge of the Fifth. And then May the 6th will be our beer fest. So our character We'll be uh, changing a little bit for the theme. Uh, We've always had the character, uh, our kind of mascot, which is the hop head, but then wearing kind of medieval armor. We're going to take and and play with that a little bit. Cool. Going to encourage people to dress up 
in their fandom if they choose. And it's going to be kind of a, a Star Wars themed version of Lord of the Hops. That's May the 6th. We're still in planning for that. We're working on uh, bringing in some more out-of-state breweries. And so details should be finalized within the next few weeks. And then uh, we'll start posting uh, breweries that are coming and, and things like that. Fantastic. I'll try to come out again. I know as, as a brewer, you know, you get to share beers with your, your friends are in the industry. Uh, I'm sure people bring beers in for you to try. Is there anything out there that you've always wanted to try, but haven't due to distribution or maybe a seasonal nature of the release? Trying to think about things that I'd, I wanted to try that I haven't gotten to. Yeah, I, I fulfilled a lot of that on a trip that I took between Christmas and New Year's. I actually had just finished up because November, December are big months for releases. Yes. The big stouts come out then. Our triple IPA, the West Coast triple IPA comes out then. So I had just wrapped up between uh, filling in bartending and brewing and everything like that about 20 days straight. So I took a trip. Uh, I just told everybody, I'm like, hey, it's been a long month. I'm taking a week and uh, loaded some blankets and pillows in the back of my Jeep and just hit the road. I ended up hitting a lot of places that I wanted to, or I haven't had a lot from. I ended up traveling eight states and hitting 15 breweries that week. Okay. Uh, spent a few days in Tampa and hit a bunch of them there in Tampa, hit uh, Asheville, North Carolina, hit Nashville, hit Atlanta, hit Knoxville. I would say probably the one that stands out to me is one that I have not had much from that. Um, was kind of a bucket list place that was burial brewing in Asheville. Absolutely. Um, burial. I mean, top to bottom, I had stouts, I had IPAs, I had their lagers solid top to bottom. A any beer you get there is good. Um, so having a chance to try a bunch of stuff from them was really exciting. I'd had a, maybe one stout from them and that's about it. Never had any of their IPAs or anything else. Um, so that was uh, a fun one to get to. What are some places that you hit in Tampa that, that you always wanted to hit to try? Uh, of course, Angry Chair. Um, yep, I've had stuff yep, uh, yep. from them on occasion, mm -hmm. but to actually get there and, and try some different stuff. I mean, Angry Chair is always known for their big pastry stout. So that's the only thing I really have had from them. Mm -hmm. Then let's see, Woven Water. It's kind of funny. I went into Woven Water right when they opened. And I sat down and looked at their menu and I was texting with my one uh, bartender that uh, he's been with me for almost four years now. And I was like, dude, this is crazy. I think that we're out of place. Like we're a Florida brewery in Indiana. Um, we do a, a blue raspberry lemonade seltzer for like our main seltzer that we do. Mm -hmm. That was theirs as well. They did like four smoothie sours. They did three New England IPAs, a couple of clean beers. And uh, the the beer list was amazing how much how much similarity there was between the two. Let's see, I hit Hidden Springs, hit uh, Magnanimous, which is a, a newer one. Yep. Uh, their owner, head brewer, came from Angry Chair, actually, okay. and uh, spent some time there. Arcane is one uh, that I went to in Largo. They actually have ties to this area. Um, one of the owners and, and the brewer, Ed Brewer, is actually from South Bend originally. So um, had fun stopping in there. I didn't announce that I was coming or anything like that. So 
I wasn't expecting any anybody waiting for me to come in or anything like that, but they just happened to be there brewing and you know, we hit it off. So hopefully uh, in the future with the uh, people that I've met down there, we'll be able to do some fun collabs uh, with some some folks from Tampa. Um, I have to say Green Bench was the one on the trip to to Tampa that I was not on my list, uh, but ends up I'm sitting at magnanimous drinking the night before and a guy comes in uh standing next to me has like three samples and I'm I'm talking to him a little bit about uh, the loggers down there and he says yeah I I actually I I own green bench brewing and if you want you know some of the best loggers around you need to stop in and uh he was not wrong nice of of all the places I went down there his loggers were awesome um, exactly what they're supposed to be. Uh, they have a huge wild fermentation space as well, uh, which was also fun. I picked up a bottle that they did in collaboration with uh, Central State Brewing, which has been gone for, I want to say almost two years now, right. but uh, they still had cellared some of those bottles. So picked up a bottle that uh, had ties back to Indiana. Chris was awesome. Um, I talked to him about the loggers because one thing I'm I'm very big on is that if it's not right, I dump it. So with the lagering program and getting that going, one of the things that, uh, as I mentioned, I'm very picky. Uh, I'm very picky about how that lager comes out on the other end of the lagering process. And if I don't think it's what it should be, if I don't think it's good enough, it's going to go directly to the drain. Mm -hmm. And uh, so having uh, been able to talk to him a little bit, Um, and, you know, even have just that connection to say, Hey, if I can, you know, ask you some information here and there, is that cool? Um, one of the, one of the coolest things about the brewing industry is, is that type of camaraderie. And, um, I I had a blast, uh, meeting folks that were in the industry down there. Awesome. That sounds like a lot of fun. So I, I would agree with you. And that maybe is part of why, um, I really felt like I wanted to, to highlight the craft industry because of that camaraderie. I hate to keep bringing up COVID, but I mean, it's part of our DNA now. Um, Mm -hmm. No pun intended. You know, you hear stories of, you know, breweries, you know, offering their canning lines or offering supplies, all sorts of great stuff to help keep each other running and open. And that's where that resiliency and that creativity comes in, you know, just trying to think outside the box and, you know, what can we do to, to just stay in the game? COVID was, was an interesting time for us. It was one of those things where, you know, Indiana decided to shut everything down and, you know, it was like a week later and everything was shut down. So it was a lot of, a lot of teamwork. Um, in our case, we had to basically scratch the business plan altogether and say, okay, how are we going to make this work? Fortunately, we made it through that fairly okay and kind of moving forward from that. But I think that when you, you mentioned keep bringing up COVID, I, I think that the effects of the whole COVID shutdown and, and recovery are still something that is is affecting everybody today. Yeah, for sure. For sure. One last fun question for you, Stefan. Sure. If you were a beer, what style would you be and why? If I was a beer, I'm going to say barley wine. I'm a, I'm a, a big guy, so I wouldn't necessarily, not, not to, to, to say anything about my, uh, my beer belly, but uh, I've earned it, honestly. But at the same time, I think that barley wine kind of flies under the radar a little bit. I'm a pretty chill dude. And so like 
you see me out at a bar or anything like that, I'm, I'm usually just kind of keeping to myself and just chilling out. And I think barley wine is the same way. Great beer just flies under the radar a little bit from what it, what it actually should be. We took one to a beer fest down in uh, central Indiana. It was Hoosiers uh, beer fest. And we literally had to explain to people what a barley wine was mm. uh, because they're so uh, rarely made anymore. So I, I'll, I'll go with barley wine. Okay. I like a good barley wine myself. It's got a lot of flavor. It's a very interesting style. Absolutely. Really cool. Well, listen, that's all I have for today. So I really appreciate you taking time out of your super busy schedule to uh, get on the show here and chat with me. I look forward to maybe sitting down at some point, either at the the mill or at uh, Market Street and having a, having a beer with you. Yeah, actually, absolutely. When you're in town, fire me off something and I'll uh, make sure that uh, I'm around. Sounds good. Well, hey, thanks again, Stefan. Really appreciate it. Keep up the good work there in Northeast Indiana. No problem. Thank you. Last call. It's nearly time to wrap things up, but first, one more for the road. This episode, I'm drinking Jewelbrig from Motorworks Brewing in Bradenton, Florida. From the brewer, our spin on a wintertime Nordic spiced beer, this bright copper-colored Saison features aromas of bergamot, lemon, mint, orange, and clove, with initial flavors of spicy pink peppercorns, followed by bitter lemon that's rounded out by a sweet orange character. The Julebach, or Yule Goat, is a common figure in modern Scandinavian countries. Its earliest manifestations are rooted in the worship of Thor, whose chariot was drawn across the sky by a pair of goats. Today, small Julebach made of straw are a staple household Christmas decoration, good luck charm, and a Santa-like figure bearing gifts and good cheer. God Jewel! Without further delay, Jewelbrig is a Saison with a 7.6% ABV and 22 IBU. So I picked this beer up when I was in my Florida journey. It sounded interesting. So when I looked at the bottle, it said it was a cardamom and pink peppercorn Saison. So that really intrigued me because I like spice and I like world flavors like that. If you recall from earlier episodes, Saison is a French word for season. Though this beer is a wintertime quaff, it seemed appropriate considering the change in season happening even now here in the Midwest. A Saison should be consumed at a slightly warmer temperature somewhere in the 40 to 45 degree Fahrenheit range. So I'm going to go ahead and pour this out into a tall tulip glass. But it definitely has that nice copper color that it was described as. It has a fine white head and has a little bit of effervescence going on with it. So this episode, we're talking about aroma. And when I was thinking about this, this just seemed like a, a good beer to use for this episode. So when I uh, just take a smell on the nose here, I don't really get a whole lot of aroma on the start here. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to, uh, to go ahead and take a sip and give this a little bit of a swirl. Wow, that has a great flavor to it. I would agree that it's definitely got some peppercorn and definitely has that citrusy flavor as well. Oh, that is rather good. So I'm going to go ahead and swirl this in my tulip glass a little bit here. I'm going to keep my hand over the top of it, and then I'm going to get my nose right down in there and take a quick sniff. Oh yeah, so, so with this I'm definitely getting a lot of that spice that was described. Getting the clove, getting some mint in there, definitely some citrus. Gosh, that is so great. So, as mentioned, it's only 22 IBU, so it's super smooth. 
Wow, there's just a tiny bit of bitterness on the end of it. So I actually had to look up what a bergamot was, and that is a, a type of orange, which is pretty cool. So, uh, so definitely uh, this is, is going to be very citrus forward, very complex. Uh, so again, it's got that funky Saison nose, but I also get underlying notes of, of orange, uh, of lemon, but it certainly has got a little bit of spiciness to it. And it's always pretty exciting to me to try something new. I'm a big fan of, of the Saison style. Don't drink them uh, nearly enough, but I think they are a super approachable beer. They can come in, in very mild, very mellow notes, or you can also get them that are more spicy, that have more of a, a hoppiness to them, which is also pretty, uh, pretty tasty as well. So overall, this is a solid uh, Saison. I love the winter take on it and the spiciness. Motorworks, great beer. I give this one... A solid three and a half tasters out of five on the flight board. Cheers! Well, if you've got a beer you'd like me to drink and describe, leave a comment below. If you're a brewer and have one in mind, direct message me on Instagram and let's see what we can do. That's all for this episode of the Five Beer Plan. With so many podcasts out there, thanks for choosing to listen to mine. Join me next time as I look into another popular hop variety, continue my homebrew journey, and kick off my conversation with another everyman, Trent Snyder from Bridge Up Brewing. Remember to hit the subscribe button to be notified of new episodes. I'd love to hear from you, so please follow me on Instagram, 5beerplan2022, and leave a comment to let me know whether you have ever used an all-grain bill for homebrewing before. Be sure to support your local breweries, choose your beers wisely, and drink them responsibly. Until next time, keep walking your ale trail. Stay thirsty, my friends.